And for me, it was really important to realize who that self-talk sounded like when it was negative. So being able to say like, ah, that isn't my genuine inner voice. That is this person, that's a script I learned from somebody who shared that message with me over and over and over again. You're listening to CWC Talks, a podcast from the University of Florida Counseling and Wellness Center. In each episode, we discuss mental health topics related to the experience of being a student and share the struggles and joys of taking care of your mental health while in college. Before we get started, just a few notes on today's content. The views expressed here only reflect our opinions and don't represent the CWC or the University of Florida or the mental health professions as a whole. Additionally, some content may be sensitive for students who have experienced trauma. Please reach out if you need additional support. In this episode, Dr. Sarah Nash and Dr. Stephanie Yan, licensed mental health counselor and clinical assistant professor at the CWC, discuss learning to like yourself. Hi, my guest today is Dr. Stephanie Yan, who is a licensed mental health counselor at the CWC. Welcome, Stephanie. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad that you wanted to come back and talk about this topic. So we are going to discuss learning to like yourself today and our own journeys of learning to like ourselves and all the different ways that this can play out, things that have been helpful for us, things we recommend to the students that we counsel. And so let's start with a question. Did you grow up liking yourself, Stephanie? (laughs) Oh, yeah, I like the question. Uh, For me, that question would have been bewildering in my early years. (laughs) The idea of liking yourself was just like, I knew it was a thing people talked about, but it seemed like a like a fluffy idea that maybe some special people have that experience. And it wasn't that I disliked myself. It was just that it really wasn't a question. Like that just wasn't a thing that made sense to wonder about or not, not even about expecting it to happen in life, but that, that that was just some other dimension that wasn't relevant to me. Sounds like it wasn't even on your radar, right? As like a thing. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, I would say looking back, I didn't, I definitely didn't dislike myself, but I, I certainly wasn't my friend. Um, I wasn't caretaking myself. Yeah, I wasn't my own ally. And so those are, those are things that I think are related to liking myself now. So we'll talk a lot more about all of those things, uh, befriending yourself, becoming your own ally. But first, help me understand kind of when you became aware of your relationship with yourself? I would say that it started to develop when I was in college. By the time I was in grad school training to become a counselor, it really started to become apparent to me because I was surrounded then by peers who I I could, in the conversations we had in our courses, really hear that they liked themselves. And it was starting to feel like a gap for me that others have this experience and it sounds lovely, but mysterious. And how on earth do I get there? And there have been times in my life, too, that I've, I have like very actively disliked myself and had a very bitter relationship with myself for some darker periods. And, and so especially like when I was in those, those lower parts, I could really feel that gap. And so it felt especially far away, but it started to feel more like a real option during those times when I started kind of noticing like, wow, these people really like, I, I'm kind of like imagining the gesture of hugging yourself. Like these people really hold themselves and care for themselves. And 
like they treasure themselves and they think they're great people, but it's not just like having a good evaluation, but like having an actively good nurturing, caring self-relationship. And it, it started to be something that I wanted. What do you mean when you say it wasn't having a good evaluation? Yeah, it's, it's more than a cognitive thing. You know, I could kind of look at myself all through my life and say, like, I'm good at things. I'm, you know, when I was a kid, I'm a well-behaved child. <laughs> you know, I, I have these talents and people generally like me. Cognitively, I had this good evaluation of myself. I didn't think I was a bad person, but I just wasn't like by my own side. Yeah, I wasn't like enjoying being me. I didn't kind of prize myself and say like, how cool that I get to be me. And like, let's find out more about me and let's become more of myself. Like those are things that started to become more of part of my thinking and my feeling about myself as time went on. One of the ways that I think about this is the difference between liking myself because of particular things that I'm good at or like liking myself because I'm doing well in school or I'm doing well in my job. Those things I would say liking myself because I've met certain criteria and I've met certain conditions, like liking myself because I'm having a good hair day or because today, you know, I lost a couple of pounds last week, right? Those are all criteria-based evaluations the problem with basing my liking of myself on those things is that they are constantly changing. I remember a point in college where I started to become aware that perhaps that wasn't what was meant by liking myself, truly liking myself. Yeah, yeah. I think I I didn't get caught too much into that. Somehow that has never been a strong trap for me. Um, I've always enjoyed being able to perform up to standards and things like that. I, I've tended to enjoy things more for their own sake. So that that didn't pull me in quite as bad as it sounds like it got you. But yeah, that's that's interesting to kind of hear because I think that is really true for a lot of people of like, it could be an easy mistake to think like, I like myself because I can say I'm good at this or that, or I've done well at this or that. Or Or I'll like myself when... Oh my goodness, so painful. So painful and so common, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I know when I work with students who especially are used to being really competitive and very driven to succeed academically and succeed professionally, that if they do poorly on an exam or maybe start struggling in their major, it can lead to a real identity crisis because they only get to like themselves to the extent that they're doing well. And yeah. 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 For, I think what that's bringing up for me is for me, it wasn't about like performance based things, but it was more about emotional and relational things that it's the idea of good enough. And I think there is for me, especially earlier on there, there's been a level of like part of me, not like a loud voice, but a voice in me that would say like, you can feel good enough when so-and-so is happy, when so-and-so has this relationship with you that they're asking for, when we've gotten to this kind of setup in the family or, you know, they smile or, you know, whatever those cues might be that I would be able to say like, okay, now my world is good. I have done what was needed of me to make my parents happy, my family happy, whatever. I think those were more of the, the traps that I slid into rather than like to get the A's or things like that. Like those... I mean, for me, those things just, I wanted those intrinsically. 
Um, and the pressure more came from other things like, like those emotional kind of family origin stuff. That's helpful because I think the point is that we can get caught in this in a lot of different ways, right? So it can mm-hmm. be relationships and people responding in a certain way can become kind of that measuring tape for when are, when are you good enough? Or it can be around grades or uh, body image or all kinds of places that maybe depending on our own unique circumstances, we're, we're prone to getting caught one place or another around this stuff. But it sounds like the fundamental, like the root of it is a sense of not being good enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, I think that phrase is so loaded. Like there's just so much emotional energy. And I've met with a lot of students who like have that deep sense of not being good enough. And I know I've really struggled with that. I like to share that with students when I'm working with them that like, I can relate to that. And especially when people are sharing like that they don't like themselves, believe it or not, like you would think in my job, I, I might've naturally come by this, but I worked hard to get to this place of, of liking myself. Like I went through a not pretty process and you know, the ups and the downs of it. Yeah. I think these are all pretty relatable things and really important things to to not say, oh, it's fluffy or like you can get by without it because it just absolutely enriches life to explore these things and and to like look for that better relationship with yourself and to look to get free of those conditions for that. I wonder if we could talk more about kind of how this played out for you in your relationships. So did you feel like, I mean, I'm simplifying, but that you could like yourself if other people liked you or if other people behaved in a certain way towards you, then you would feel good. Then you would feel like you were okay. That is a really interesting question for me. I can feel a lot of like emotional energy coming up when you talk about other people liking me. And I realize like that's, that's got like loaded stuff behind it for me. I definitely remember comparing myself to peers when I was a grad student and thinking, boy, I'm so glad that I don't depend on other people's approval. (laughs) And that's one of those like fun, naive thoughts where I think I'm above something. And then it turns out like, no, no, humble yourself because this is going to come back around. And so, you know, I've experienced since then those points where I say to somebody like a supervisor, clinical supervisor, and say like, I would really love to not want your approval, but I know I want it right now. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So like, I, I see kind of, there's different parts of that picture, but I, I know that those things do pull at me. And I think it, it does make it easier to like be in that place of liking myself. And so especially when that was more vulnerable and that that wasn't as well established for me, it, it did help more to at least think people didn't dislike me. That's a, a trap that I'm prone to falling into is thinking that people dislike me, that they don't want me around. And so that's that's that tenderness that got poked on just in, with your question. And that's that's an important area for me to continue relating to and being kind to myself around and growing with. Well, it's true. I appreciate your vulnerability and I'm just thinking it's tricky. And I think that's one of the reasons why this can be um, sometimes a fluffier topic than it really plays out to be like in counseling where we're really digging into it with another person because I think about basic needs, right? And we do need acceptance and belonging from others. We need that. That is a basic need. And when we don't get it growing up, when we don't feel like truly seen and heard for who we are as people, 
kind of warts and all, right? When we don't have that sense of belonging growing up, that we can carry that emptiness or longing into young adulthood. And one of the things that I try to work with students on who really struggle with not liking themselves is and feeling alienated from others or feeling like maybe others wouldn't really like them if they really knew who they were, is it it can be both. Like you can be working on building those genuine connections in your life and working on liking yourself at the same time. You you may not want to wait trying to learn to like yourself for those friends because some some we don't have a lot of control over when those people show up. But it's not like you have to like yourself before anyone good is going to be willing to be your friend. Those kind of pop culture notions, I don't find them helpful. Like it's like chicken or the egg. You might be, learn to like yourself more if you find someone who really sees you and connects with you. But again, since we don't always have control over when we're going to find those true good friends, we can always work on what's our relationship to ourselves. If I was my own friend, would I think this friendship was healthy for me? Would I think this friendship was good for me? Yeah, yeah. In my experience, those things definitely like we're developing in tandem. I think experiencing people who were kind to me and who were kind to themselves with me really showed me a lot about how I could relate to myself positively. And also being able to kind of like explore that in myself, I got to then bring that into those relationships and to help bring those relationships up to new levels of, of depth of intimacy of dynamics and what we can include in those relationships. And I continue to grow along those lines. So yeah, I really think both tracks are important. Yeah, as do I. And talk to me a little bit more about learning to like yourself. Like what did you have to become aware of and what did you start paying attention to in that process? Yeah, well, I appreciate that just a little bit ago, you mentioned sort of the roots of all of this. And I think that those like early scripts matter a lot. I know for me, a really important part of the early work that I've done here that continues to be of value and that I I really get to share with students when they're getting to start this work for themselves or things that are related is just looking at that self-talk. And for me, it was really important to realize who that self-talk sounded like when it was negative. So being able to say like, ah, that isn't my genuine inner voice. That is this person. That's a script I learned from somebody who shared that message with me over and over and over again. And it doesn't have to have been a verbal message. I think it's something where we might overlook it in the moment because we're just doing our survival thing. We're just kind of trying to chug along when it happens, but we get like a side eye or we get you know, some other sort of just even nonverbal message. And that can be from body language. That can be from patterns of interactions, you know, somebody not showing up when they said that they would or ending an interaction early or so many other little things that you could kind of look past and say, oh, that's, that's fine. That's the situation, whatever. But when you look at that larger context, you can say there's a message in there. You know, if this happens enough times, there's a message in there. And I internalize that message. Children are very kind of permeable to those messages from the, the significant figures in their lives. And so I'm especially thinking about my early years, like childhood, how much I was taking in from the people who were caretakers to me or who were significant figures to me. And just because of the ways our brains work and and sort of survival stuff, we really hold on to those negative messages very strongly. And so there could be a lot of positive messages, but we know that the negative messages just hold more weight because we have to be so careful about them. 
So we really try to adapt to that. And so that gets internalized really, really strongly. So being able to identify that gave me a little more power to say, that's old stuff. That's not right now. That's not me. And that started to help a lot. What were some of those negative messages? Hmm. Well, like I said, the, the, the question I've had linger for a long time of like, do people really want me around? So one of those messages was, you're not wanted here. You don't belong here. Messages of you are not good, that you are a problem. So yeah, there's just so many ways to phrase it, but it's the, that whole kind of ball of wax. Yeah, just some really ugly stuff. So painful. So painful. And I'm thinking we can get that from our families or our caregivers. We can also get that from peers, like bullying. It has been, it doesn't take much for that to take root. I remember one of the places where I grew up feeling inadequate is that we were pretty poor and I never had the right clothes and that I got teased a lot and I'm a redhead. So students in more glasses and just like silly things now as an adult that don't matter anymore. But at a young age, just feeling super awkward and like I, I didn't fit in and I so desperately wanted to fit in. And that was just amazing how I'll just share, share one story. When I was 16, I was going to PK Young, which is our UF developmental research school here. And I was going to high school at PK Young. It was the first time I had a real group of friends in my whole life. It was the first time we were able to afford a yearbook. I passed around the yearbook at the end of the year. And when I got it back, my friend group had signed it and I read what they said about me, I remember I just collapsed in the grass and started to sob because it was the first time, even though they, I had been spending eating lunches and staying the night and spending time with these people, I thought they were just tolerating me. And it was the first time it occurred to me that maybe they weren't just tolerating me. Maybe they genuinely liked me maybe they even loved me. It was such a powerful experience. You know, that insecurity didn't go away, but I think that was a real turning point in my life. Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. I, I felt all of that as you told that story. Yeah, that makes me think about how, like you said, like that's the turning point can be so powerful and the work still continues. And it really made me think about something that it took me a while to appreciate was going on for me. I am extremely appreciative of kind gestures from people. Like I hold on to them and like I have a mental collection of them and I have a collection of thank you notes, like inclusive gestures, kind gestures, appreciative gestures are like really big to me. And I didn't know that wasn't something that is as common as I assumed it was. Um, as I was doing some of my learning and my research and my self-exploration, I realized like some people treasure that more powerfully than others. And those people who do might have a, a stronger need for that because that's been missing for them. That may be filling what feels like a hole for them. And I, I think I'm one of those people. That some acknowledgement and appreciation really goes a long way. Yeah. Yeah. Just feeling so 
so powerfully different. So even though I can kind of go through my life and not feel like I'm like craving that or kind of pandering after that, when I get it, it's a Mm. big deal. (laughs) It Mm. feels really important to like treasure that, hold that Mm. and feel wanted. That's, I mean, that's lovely though, because it sounds like you have also learned how to receive, you know, in a previous conversation, you talked about growing up aloof and feeling like maybe you didn't, I'm, you know, imagining some of that is just that you don't need people and right. Like you were saying, starting graduate school, feeling like, well, I'm glad I'm not relying (laughs) on anyone else's approval. Right. So, so realizing that you do you do value closeness and connection and all of that. It, it just, it sounds like you really let it in when you get it. You really let it in. Yeah. Yeah. Getting in touch with my mushy side has been a beautiful <laughs> thing. <laughs> and I, I think I, I would never have denied it, but now I live with it more actively. Like it's, yeah. it's my roommate who I talk to all the time now. It's uh-huh. not just like somebody who's in my life. It's a part of me that's really there. You know, the, a lot of the research that Brene Brown and her folks put out talks about how it actually is really vulnerable to receive yeah. uh, love from other people and, and kindness from other people. And that that is a very positive thing for us to learn how to open our hearts and let in, let in other people's responses to us, the positive ones. Uh, I still struggle with that to this day. I, I struggle to... Um, when people write me cards and stuff, I think there's a part of me that's sometimes like afraid to really let in that appreciation. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's taken me practice to get comfortable with that. And I've been fortunate to have people who are open to expressing appreciation and really like beautiful, wonderful ways that teach me to express that appreciation more too, because that aloofness, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't let things in as easily, but it also doesn't let a lot out that really is challenging, but important and good for me to let out. So, you know, a lot of my appreciation and love for the people around me, that also is part of my process of like accepting myself and loving that that's something that I can offer to people. And it's not about doing that for others entirely. Like it's also good for me to do that for myself too, to be able to say like other people are important in my life, that I don't have to be so independent and self-sufficient. So that seems like a great time to transitions we're talking about appreciate words of appreciation gestures of appreciation from others let's talk about you working on doing that for yourself how did you go about that i like to just sort of identify a theme for myself so i don't i don't do new year's resolutions i do sort of themes and so one of the first ones that i picked was just like being bolder And so I would just kind of say to myself, like, okay, I want to be bolder and periodically just check in, like, okay, how am I being bold lately? And it was never really like a formal process doing that with myself, but just kind of like having that somewhere present for me more often. Basically, if an opportunity came up and I was noticing that I had an appreciation for somebody and I might normally feel shy about expressing that, that I would have that kind of idea of boldness in my mind or of gratitude in my mind or of developing relationships and friendships more towards the vulnerable and intimate side. Kind of having that in my mind and say like, you know, if I was a bolder person that I would like to, you know, develop that side of myself, I would tell them this. I would tell them that like, that's something I really respect and admire. And so just doing little things like that repeatedly helped to make it more of a habit. And so it just became part of my repertoire through doing that. And so it took deliberate choices up front and and many of them, but they also got easier over time. And then sometimes a new situation comes up that it's, it's much harder, 
but having practiced the easier levels of the challenge, you know, then I'm ready to, to try to take on a harder level of that challenge. And that's how I keep growing. I'm thinking about for people who might be thinking about this stuff for the first time as they hear us talk, trying to break it down a little bit uh, into, I'm glad you said themes, because it sounds like the first theme was just becoming aware that there was a self-critical voice in your head and that it, it starting to tune into it and actually listen to what it was telling you and beginning to ask yourself questions about that voice. Questions like, one, what what is it saying? Two, does it remind you of anyone in your life? And three, are those messages that are healthy for you? Do you believe those things about yourself? Might those messages be things that you've just picked up along the way that aren't serving you anymore. And so the birth of your awareness of all of that sounds like where this started. And then and over time, it sounds like you made a choice that you really wanted to, my, my words, I think about it as evicting that voice, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. in, in, in my journey, it was like, oh my gosh, there, there's this really like judgmental negative being that's like, located in my brain and it is there it's 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 causing me a lot of suffering and it's not really helping me but it thinks that it's it thinks that it it's the authority you know it really mm-hmm. speaks mine spoke with a voice of authority um, and so I had to work on like how do I you know in some ways like how do I evict this voice and like reintroduce someone that I would genuinely choose to live in here and talk to me all the time and I, I don't know if you can connect to that way of thinking about it. Yeah, for me, it's bringing up the idea of like, I had to learn to access anger um, because I was right to get angry at the voice that was saying such hurtful things to me and to be able to access anger to the people who informed that voice and who helped create that voice and to, to just know like, you know what, I'm here to protect myself. Um, and I think that's a really important part of my process of like really feeling like I'm an adult You know, I think a lot of college students think about like, when am I an adult? So for me, a big part of that process was like, I'm my protector now. Like I will stand up for me and I won't take your BS because I've evicted that voice. Like you said, I like that term. So I, I, you know, it started out with just being able to get a little angry about like, hey, that wasn't okay. I, I was, you know, I was helpless. I was captive to that situation where that was happening. And that wasn't okay. This was the person who was supposed to protect and take care of me. And they, they abused that power in that position. And then I also lacked the care that was supposed to come from that. And so feeling sad, you know, not feeling sorry and pitying myself, but just saying like, there's genuine sadness in that situation. Like grieving what you didn't get. Yeah. The, the need, the unmet needs that you grow up with. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot of like hard, big feelings that I think I had to allow myself to get in touch with. And, and anger is an important part of that because it does help me set boundaries now. And I think that's a really important part of like, taking care of myself. And it's a way I express my liking for myself because I value myself enough to say, "Mm, that's not okay. I'm not going to expect that of myself. I'm not going to allow somebody else to do that to me, whatever the case might be. I'm here for me. I'm the good parent that I need now. I'm my self-parent. I'm hearing you and I'm remembering when I was doing a lot of this work, it was, it started in college and continued through grad school for me. I saw a number of different therapists who helped me in different ways with this stuff. But I went through phases where people might have thought I was a little bit 
off because I would walk around talking to that voice in my head. And sometimes I would talk out loud to it, like, you know, without realizing people were around or I would drive around in my car and have dialogues with that part of myself and really try to fight back. Like you're saying, get angry, fight back. And I think it's important to say that even if we have no control over how those adults or other people continue to speak to us. I continue to have relationships with my parents during that time. And in a lot of ways, our external relationship didn't change very quickly. But I realized that they could say something to me that was hurtful, but then I could go home and look at that and make a decision inside of myself that I wasn't going to take that on. And so it was beginning to develop like a intimacy with myself. What I did have control over was how much I let that voice linger inside of me. As I took some of my power back over what was my internal dialogue, I could begin to relate differently and ask for different things from the outside. Yeah, I like I like that differentiation of inside outside. I think something that I noticed in what you said is like you had some physical space that was separate from those influences so that you could be with yourself. And I think that's really helpful. And that's one of the things I really love about college is because oftentimes when people go to campus and they're spending their time away from their family a little more so, even if you're visiting home or even if your family lives in town, but you're living somewhere else, you're just getting a little more you space where you can do that exploration, where you can do that differentiation. And that's, that's really helpful and important. It's tough when you go back for break and you're back in that world, that mindset comes back. And that kind of also brings to my mind the other piece of like, part of what makes it so hard is we, we go back into that child mode, but we don't have to. That child mode feels really powerful and it, it carries, you know, oftentimes trauma from these things that we've been through. And so, you know, trauma feels present when it gets triggered and so, you know, it's really hard not to slip back into that. And I think being able to have like a nice dialogue with my inner child is something that has been helpful where I can kind of say like, oh, little self, that's what I, you know, think of her as like, oh, little self, I see you're feeling, you know, really upset about this thing and name the feeling more specifically like angry or sad or hopeless or whatever that might be and say like, as if there was a child in front of me. Like, I see that that was hard for you for them to say that or to do that or not do that, or whatever the case might be. When I reflect those feelings for myself as if I'm talking to a child just with that kind of gentleness, I think it, it really, it, it is soothing um, to that part of me. You know, it doesn't make it go away or make it better. But then I think like I see myself being that caretaker and that ally and that protector that I need. And so I get to see myself coming into those roles and satisfying them in a way that maybe the adults in my life struggled to do when I was growing up. Some of the, I'm going to bungle this, um, but some of the core concepts of psychology in terms of the developmental tasks that young adults have, um, have to do with the ways we internalized our parents or our caregivers and whether or not those internalized parental figures were the best for us. If you, there's a concept called like a good enough parent. Like if you had a good enough parent, then it doesn't mean it means your parent isn't going to be perfect, but they're good enough. You grow up with that. Their voice in your head might actually be 
pretty positive. And so as you enter adulthood, you, you know, even if maybe that parent passes away, you can still kind of call upon their presence in your life and their their role in your life and, and grow from it and benefit from it. Uh, for folks who may have had more traumatic childhoods, upbringings, the internalized parent isn't so helpful. And there's a process of reparenting that comes into play where it's almost like what you're describing, Stephanie, is learning to be the parent that you never had, mm-hmm. learning to be the parent that you really needed Yeah, yeah. for yourself, for the little parts of yourself, for the wounded parts of yourself, the scared parts, that you, you began to encourage her gently, lovingly, sweetly, acknowledge her feelings and like take care of your little self in a way that allowed her to feel safe heard and really begin to thrive which brings us to kind of that next piece that you were talking about where nowadays you identify like risks that you want to take to continue to grow your your themes right instead of new year's resolutions you identify like i want to be bolder i want to i want to try these new things and then you coach yourself through mm-hmm. those things, right? Yeah. You, inc- but in the coaching, sounds like it's, it's more of an encouraging coach than like a mean coach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like an older child who has a little more independence and needs to move about the world, you know, on their own sometimes. But they come home and they talk with their parent about their world and they kind of problem solve or plan for how to deal with things. Like I get to be that parent who I'm intimately involved in my explorations of the world that is still, you know, the parts of it that are new to me. I think it's important to add that I know we talk about difficult upbringings and and parents and and hard childhoods in this conversation, but I think it's entirely possible to have relatively loving parents, a relatively consistent upbringing, and still come into young adulthood with some of these issues, and it that our society, our culture, can itself be so judgmental and critical that maybe we got plenty of love and safety at home, but still absorbed. Just social media, growing up on social media alone can can lead to so much rejection and mm-hmm. self-judgment. Yeah, yeah. And I think people who raise us, are, they're subjected to those things too. They can be affected by those things too. And it can be so subtle, you know, and that's, I think it's really an important thing for people to do this work so that, you know, if you do raise a future generation that like you may have more awareness and you may have more of a stable place from which to, to do that raising of a new child. But, you know, even just for ourselves, we can kind of benefit from those things, even if we don't become caregivers for children. It's important, I think, and tough too to do that both for ourselves and for others. And we can also extend that to people who are on our same level. So even to our friends, like when we have that kind of caring relationship for ourselves, we can show others that care um, because it comes from a more stable and a more certain place. It comes from a deeper place. It's not superficial when it's genuine, when we have that kind of liking and care for ourselves and we, we offer that then to others. It's kind of the idea of like, if your cup is full of goodness and self-liking, like then you have those kinds of things to share with other people. I picture like a figure eight where it flows it flows back and forth between you and others. If you can give it to yourself, you can give it to others and hopefully also receive it from others as those the quality of those relationships improves. 
I was thinking about um, one more really pivotal experience uh, for myself in this journey, and then was going to ask you if there's if there's anything else that you want to make sure you share on this topic of learning to like ourselves. I was, uh, this is like, besides my yearbook moment, this is probably like the other really big moment for me in this work. And then there were tons of counseling sessions and journal entries and all kinds of other stuff in between. But I was on the University of Florida campus and don't know if I was in undergrad or grad school, but I was walking across the Plaza of the Americas and it hit me like a ton of bricks, this question, who gets to like themselves? And it showed up as just who gets to like themselves. And I started to really wonder about it because it seems like really liking yourself is a pretty radical decision to make in our culture that you know, so many people in advertising and the consumer economy are profiting off of us being unhappy with ourselves and constantly trying to improve the way we look, the way we feel. I just started to wonder about this because I didn't like myself a whole lot at the time. I was in a lot of pain. I was pretty depressed. I had gotten addicted to cigarettes, so I wasn't taking care of myself. And I had a lot of shame about that. I had having a lot of trouble in dating relationships, felt very unlovable. And so it came at a time when I was in a lot of pain and, and had a lot of self-judgment. And I, I started looking around at all the students around me and I, and I looked at for students who maybe, maybe they didn't look perfect, right? Like maybe they didn't live up to our stereotypical standards of beauty for example. And I started to ask myself, can that person like themselves? Is that person allowed to like themselves? And I started to realize that I would want that person to like themselves, even if they didn't live up to whatever standards, that I didn't want that person to walk around with self-hatred or self-judgment. Like I wanted, I wanted them to really like themselves. And that's when I realized maybe the people that get to like ourselves are the ones who just make that decision. Like maybe it's just a freaking choice that I am going to like myself and I'm going to like myself as I am, as I am right now with all my pain and all my insecurities and all the things that are yet to be resolved or known about who I'm going to become and how it's all going to work out. What if I just started liking myself right now the way I am? And it was hugely transformative to make the decision. And like nobody else could make that decision for me. And my culture wasn't going to tell me it was time. And it just blew me away. And I st that's when I started to really become my own friend. I walked around my life with a more loving inner voice. And I don't know that I could have made the number of positive changes. Well, you know, I was able to quit smoking and I, I really started taking much, much better care of myself. I don't know that I could have done that if I hadn't made that one big decision that I was just going to start being my own friend. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love to hear about that. And I totally, I, I love the piece where you realize like you want other people to like themselves. Like 
and I think that that's there for students who are, are wondering, you know, do they deserve to like themselves? Like, that's such an interesting question to ask. And yes, you exist. You are, you are unique. And I really appreciate it, Sarah, that you pointed out, like, with all your flaws and with all the growth there is yet to do, some people, you know, bring up this idea in therapy. They'll say, well, wouldn't that be arrogant if I liked myself? Oh, my goodness. No, <laughs> no, you can absolutely love yourself and know like there's so much more growth to do and be really committed to that. Like that's something that's really important to me. And I, you know, I have the humility to know like there is so much more growth for me and I love being my own travel companion on that journey. And so like you can, you can do that too. And you can find your awesome way of doing that. Like this is going to be so different for everybody, but I think that there is, there's enough commonality. Like you exist, you are being you. And that's a, that's a dang hard thing to do sometimes. And, you know, you have things to bring to the world that you may not even realize you're bringing just by existing. So you absolutely do deserve to like yourself. And so that's just a really cool story because I can also picture you walking through like Turlington Plaza because we were both UF undergrads, right? I can remember realizing one day that I was no longer looking only at the sidewalk when I walked through campus that I was making eye contact with people. And I was like, oh my gosh, my shame is going away. I am accepting my deservingness of being here on this sidewalk in a public space on a campus that I'm enjoying, but like, I feel like I deserve to be here. I feel like I am a good enough person to be here. And that was a really transformative kind of shift moment in how I saw myself and my growth process. So I really hope that like those who spend their time walking around looking at the sidewalk that, that you get to, to notice when that happens for you one day that like you're on the path and that's going to come for you. And it, you know, it may just be like, eyes flick up here and there. It may not be all of a sudden you're going to make eye contact and go up and chat with people or that whatever your transformation that you're hoping for that could come from liking yourself, that it's not going to be sudden and complete, but that you notice those little shifts because that's how these things happen and, and just appreciate and prize them and congratulate yourself for them because you're an active participant in your growth. That is so great because I'm thinking if, if someone was listening to this who wasn't familiar with the University of Florida campus, Turlington Plaza gets really, really crowded. And so to be able to walk through that and look at people and hold your head up is is such a big deal. I have, I'm thinking of a student I worked with for a long time, just someone I dearly love who uh, for a long time would go out of their way to avoid that that public space would plan to avoid crowded spaces because of the because of the shame and because of the fear that everyone was looking at this person with with the same kind of judgmental eyes that this person looked at themselves with and so that that's a huge breakthrough and I'll just share before I was able to do that on campus I had an intermediate step where I started looking at the trees and so I was too nervous to look at other people, but I started looking up and I started looking for a perfect tree. And I know that sounds weird, but I was challenging my own idea that uh, people are supposed to be perfect and that I was supposed to be perfect. And so I started looking at nature and, and looking at just how every single tree was a little bit different, even in the same species. So Florida, we have a lot of palm trees, but so I got to know the palm trees on campus and even the same kind of palm would look a little bit different. It would, one would grow taller than the other. The palm fronds would, they have different hairstyles. And I just 
started to like really look at nature and see just how much variety and diversity and trees that like we have a lot of oak trees too trees that had limbs cut off or had like goiters in their trunks and they had just kind of grown up around their injuries and continued to thrive and i i just began to really try to absorb that lesson in my own being that just like all of the, all of these different trees with their stories and their responses to the environment just like they all got to live and thrive around me maybe i could be that way too with whatever wounds that i was carrying and and then i was able to lower my gaze and just start to look at other people the way that i was looking at the trees Oh, that's beautiful. There's a quote that's along those lines too about like every tree is different and we don't question it and we don't say there's something wrong with that tree for being shaped the way it is, leaning the way it is. There's a reason for it. And even if we don't know what that reason is, we just trust. There's a reason that it's that way. And we can trust for ourselves that in other people like, you know, I have this funny habit or I have this, this tendency and, you know, maybe I don't like this thing about myself, but you know, I can trust that there's a reason it's that way. And, you know, if I want to expand my possibilities, I can also explore other things, but this being a tendency for me, that's, there's a reason for that. And that's okay. That doesn't make me bad. Like your trace. That I love even just hearing you say that because there's, I hear that like sweet, gentle encouragement and understanding in your voice. And I'm just thinking that's, that's, what this conversation about is about is learning to do that for ourselves. I love the way you point that out. Like it is, I've had to cultivate this kind, sweet voice for myself. And my, my outer voice has developed that ability as I've developed that in my inner voice. Um, I think that it came inside first. I, you know, it would have been, it would have been not genuine if I was to, to sort of say those things to my clients and I wasn't able to say those things to myself first. And I think that gives us so much more of an appreciation of it's not, it's not easy work to do. You've done it. I've done it. We're still, we're still working on it, but have made a lot of, made a lot of changes in a positive way for ourselves. But it's, I think some of the most important work people can do, but it is, it's challenging and it's real work and it doesn't happen overnight and takes a lot of, a lot of attention and care. Yeah. Sometimes it can be brutal. <laughs> and yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I'm a sucker for that kind of work. Like I will keep going through it because it's so worth it. And sometimes, sometimes rests are needed too. Yeah. Rests are needed. And, and sometimes there's little regressions and stuff, but yeah. that over, over time, I'm just, I'm so glad I started that journey because it has made being me a lot easier. Yeah. Well, I mean, it gets to the point that it's fun. <laughs> I think <laughs> 15 years yes. ago, you know, if I was talking to me 15 years ago, hearing me say that would be like, what was I on? <laughs> I must have been high to say that, but no, I'm just high in life. Like I'm just me and it's great. And I, I'm really glad that I finally got to a point where I can enjoy that. And that's not at all saying that I'm perfect. Part of what I enjoy about being me is the imperfection and, and the fact that life gives me so much time to like be curious about that and explore that and keep working towards growth and knowing that I'm never going to hit perfection. Like my trajectory is not going to be that, you know, quick of an upslope that I'm ever going to reach that. But what a, what a great journey. Like we don't, you don't always climb the mountain to get to the summit. Sometimes just a nice hike is a good thing. Thank you so much for this conversation, Stephanie. Yeah. Thank you. I've really enjoyed this. Me too. 
You've been listening to CWC Talks, a podcast from the University of Florida Counseling and Wellness Center. For new episodes, show notes, and to leave feedback or suggestions, please visit counseling.ufl.edu slash CWC Talks.